Welcome to The Waiting Room Revolution. We're so excited to announce our book, Hope for the Best, Plan for the Rest, Seven Keys for Navigating a Life-Changing Diagnosis, is available now in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. Get a copy wherever you buy your books, and check out our website, waitingroomrevolution.com, for more information. In honor of National Truth and Reconciliation Day, which was on September 30th, we chatted with Joanna Vatour. Joanna is a registered social worker who has experience in cancer care, mental health, and palliative care. We discuss the importance of trauma-informed care, how we can make palliative care culturally safer for First Nations communities, and what we can learn from each other. Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Joanna, welcome to the podcast. Welcome, Joanna. Thank you. Thank you, Sammy. Thank you, CN. Joanna, so I'd love if you could tell us a little bit more about yourself and the story of how you got into this work of strengthening palliative care in Indigenous communities. That's a big question. So first, I would like to introduce myself, and I'm going to introduce myself in my language. So I had just said hello. My name is Standing Cedar. I'm of the Turtle Clan, and I live in Serpent River First Nation. My English name is Joanna Moasigi Votour. And I identify as Anishinaabe. So it's important for me to introduce myself in my language. And when we do that, uh, we're also calling in, you know, our ancestors. We're honoring our ancestors that have helped us to get here to this work that we do today. Um, and it's because of those teachings that have helped me to work in palliative care. So, so working in palliative care in Indigenous communities, um, it wasn't something that I had planned on doing, and it was because of the encouragement of one of my colleagues uh, who was navigating cancer services in the Central East region, and I also recognize her as an elder and one of my elders that has taught me along the way. And she encouraged me to apply for a job um, as a Indigenous patient navigator mm. for cancer services in the Toronto region. So when I saw the job posting palliative care, I had no idea what that word meant, <laughs> but I knew what end of life care was. And for me, end of life care, I thought about, you know, Anishinaabe worldview of where I come from. And what I had learned from, you know, my grandfather, and it was for me that no one should ever feel alone at this time in their physical life experience. So that's why I had applied for the job. It was about that if I could be there for someone where they didn't feel alone at one of their most sacred life events, then that's why I got into palliative care. Mm. To accompany someone. Companioning, 
yeah. you know, being by their side, supporting the family uh, when it, in whatever way that was. And I found myself supporting, uh, you know, at the bedside or um, I would say uh, that family, you know, mm -hmm. as well. But mm -hmm. we know that end of life care is just another part of care in the mm -hmm. spectrum of palliative care. Mm -hmm. And so I have lots of stories about that too. <laughs> yeah, why don't you share some of the stories? Because, you know, the work that we do together, um, and so uh, that we've had the opportunity to collaborate on, is about the idea that palliative care isn't only reserved for the end of life. And have you, in your own experiences and in your own communities, seen how that can be beneficial when it's not just applied in the last weeks or days? Yes, I struggled with that a lot about offering that care early on in, you know, at the time of diagnosis or when seeing that illness worsening. And so my experience in navigating cancer services in the Toronto region, I covered two cancer centers and five program hospitals. And I went wherever those Indigenous patients who identified as First Nations, Inuit and Métis were receiving care. And a lot of times there was a lot of hope with that individual and their family and that they were going to survive this illness but they had no idea that their illness wasn't curative and that they were living with a serious illness that they would eventually die from. And that was a real challenge for me to witness that. And myself, I was navigating those conversations with their care team, as well as with that individual who had so much hope that they were going to be okay. Mm -hmm. So when, when you were growing up or in the Indigenous, um, you know, teachings, is it a death-denying culture as well? So what I believe is that before colonization broke the circle of the first peoples of this land that we call Canada, that we would also refer to as Turtle Island, is that we understood this life experience that we're having. We say a lot that we are spiritual beings uh, having a physical experience on Mother Earth, and mm -hmm. that um, we understood that we would come into this world and that we would learn, we would love, um, and that in this experience, there would be a time when we would have to leave this world, which we mm -hmm. say through the Western doorway, Anishinaabe mm -hmm. people, we say we leave through the Western doorway, we come in through mm -hmm. the Eastern doorway where that sun rises, and we go around that circle and we leave through the Western doorway, where the answers ancestors are back to creator back to that spiritual place where we originally came from. And so that was our belief. Um, but I believed that with colonization, it disrupted our beliefs. And some of those people stopped believing. They mm. not stopped believing, but we weren't able to pass on those beliefs and that worldview. And so for some of us, 
um, we receive those teachings. And for me, my first introduction to having a conversation about dying was with my grandfather. Mm-hmm. And my grandfather was living in the seniors home here called the Gekka. And I would go visit him when I would come and visit him in the summers. And he had told me that he was going to die. And that when he dies, his hair is going to turn white. And he shared some other things with me as well about, I get emotional when I think about this, but how he would be with me um, spiritually. And so um, it was just such a beautiful gift. And having that conversation, I wasn't scared. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't really sad either. I remember I was a teenager young teenager and I was just listening to what he had to share with me and I'm really grateful that I got to have that time with Mm -hmm. him and Mm -hmm. for him to tell me those things he wanted to tell his granddaughter before he left this physical world Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so I think that if people go back to and learn you know, our Anishinaabe worldview, I say Anishinaabe because that's the nation that I come from. And there's Mm -hmm. many nations, you know, across Turtle Island. And so with that understanding, I think people will feel less fear, Mm -hmm. you know, about dying and about returning, you know, to that spiritual place where we originally Mm -hmm. came from. Mm -hmm. But as you were saying, that cycle broke with colonization. And so there is a certain number of people um, from the Indigenous community that would be like others in terms of not really considering dying as a normal part of the life cycle and um, would be probably scared and fearful and anxious and maybe and denying that that would happen and and therefore you meet people in your role as a navigator at the cancer center who are you know thinking they're going to get better or um that this couldn't possibly end in death so is that right joanna yeah that's right and Um, what I found is that, you know, all of a sudden you're, you know, in the hospital, you know, supporting that patient at a clinic visit. Mm -hmm. And then the next week you come into, you know, the hospital and you learn that they're in the palliative care unit Mm. where they had no idea, you know, Mm. how sick they were. I think they probably knew, but their care team didn't tell them. Mm -hmm. And so, I remember one woman when I went to go see her and, you know, you have a rapport with different patients, right? Mm -hmm. And you match that rapport. And this lady was very open. And when I walked into her room and I said, you know, hey there. And I said, what's going on? And she's like, I'm dying. (laughs) She said out loud. And I wasn't expecting her to say that um, in that way. But, you know, we, we had a lot of visits with each other, and I got to know her in a different way. And I got to know a softer side of her because this woman I felt was, you know, protective, you know, of herself. Mm -hmm. And in that time, I got to be at her bedside. Uh, She really opened her heart to me, shared her stories with me. And, 
you know, it was just such an honor and she's one person that I will always remember. Um, another part of that story too, my mother had asked me, she said, Joanna, have you ever supported someone where they had said they had saw colors, they were seeing colors at the end of their life in their last days? And I said, yeah, actually I have. And it was this woman in particular where she was looking up above and she was like, oh, all I see are these colors. And I just listened to her. And my mom had told me that um, that is the Western doorway opening where the ancestors are coming to, you know, help guide her and bring her back. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it was, you know, supporting these individuals and journeying with them that have really taught me about that Western doorway. And, you know, my grandfather and my mother and many other people. So what I would describe part of the work that I do, if it is, you know, coming to end of life, I, I describe the work that, you know, I work around the Western doorway. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I love how you're talking about how you, um, you know, you started your career, you know, or part of your career as a clinical um, navigator, but you also have a social work background and you yes. have a lot to teach and share about how the importance of the sociological aspects of dying, but also trauma-informed care. And so if I could, I want to learn more about this. Like, can you explain to our, our listeners, like, what is trauma-informed care? All right. So... Um, my background is social work and I love social work. I think I've done anything and everything in social work and worked with people from uh, families of preschoolers, youth, um, adults. Uh, I've worked in youth recreation and um, preschoolers, um, early education uh, supporting families, uh, supporting families who are caregivers, and doing counseling. And so what I have learned in my work is understanding the historical events that have impacted Indigenous health and well-being. So again, another way that that circle was broken, uh, the circle of um, how we looked after ourselves as land-based peoples and that we were active people and uh, the ceremonies and the knowledge of medicines and healing that we had. And so understanding, again, that knowledge um, being, uh, you know, disconnected, you know, from the people and not being able to pass that on um, but those historical events had um, catastrophic, I'm going to say, impacts on Indigenous health and well-being, mm -hmm. where if you think about the ACE study, and it talks about um, adverse childhood experiences and the impact that has had on people's health and well-being, and that you'll see, um, you know, a trajectory of uh, their, you know, health and well-being and their relationships, um, not, you know, doing well, 
you know, in their life. So I'm trying to keep the conversation light, but light, but you know, one that we hear a lot about are residential school survivors. Mm-hmm. And this is not something that was so long ago because I've supported a lot of individuals who um, were in residential schools. Um, I think about Rai Moran, and he was one of the commissioners of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada, and he doesn't say they were schools, they were indoctrination centers. Mm -hmm. And so when you change that language, you have a greater understanding of what ones might have experienced, and then you have this individual coming out into the world where they did not receive the love. I'm just going to say the word love, that they should have to grow developmentally in a healthy, optimal way. And so you have them going out in the world, having a lot of fear, living with fear and constant survival. And so using that trauma-informed approach is having an understanding of the history that has occurred. Um, I'm gonna say that the Canadian government was responsible for in the harm of Indigenous peoples, and that the generational impact that is felt through the generations, regardless if they had experienced it directly. Can I interrupt here so you can explain to our audience what are residential schools, especially if they aren't from Canada? I smile at this question because right now our family is explaining to one of the youngest members in our family who is five years old, what residential school was. So there are lots of books out there um, that are telling this experience of this residential school indoctrination center that was created, enforced by the Canadian government. And the intent was, and very clearly, was to take the Indian out of the child. And I'm using the word Indian because that was the language that was used at the time. And this um, system removed children from their families, their communities, and all that was sacred to them. Like when I had talked about the circle. And so the circle of our knowledge, our teachings, our ceremonies, and all of those family and community members that make that circle, including the land. And it disconnected those children from all that was sacred themselves as part of that sacred um, circle. And, you know, it was experience of where they didn't receive love. They didn't receive um, family and community. And so knowing about how love is important for brain development, right? And all the other parts of our development. The last residential school I think was closed in the early nineties. And so this was um, across Canada 
And there are lots of resources that you can learn from. Uh, you can read the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada. Um, it's quite lengthy. Uh, there's a trigger warning to read that as well if people want to learn more about residential schools. I'm also going to say that there are some really good Indigenous cultural safety training courses out there. Some will charge a fee, uh, some won't. Uh, one, if you don't mind me promoting, is Canadian Virtual Hospice. Uh, they have an Indigenous cultural safety module um, and it's palliative care uh, focused. Um, I am the author of the one on grief and loss experienced by Indigenous peoples. So I would recommend that people take these courses. They're really easy to go through. Uh, they are developed by Indigenous um, authors, as well as having lived experience is really important um, as well. Well, thank you, Joanna. It's such a sad part of our history, but one that is the backdrop for why there's so much mistrust. Yeah, and it's helpful to have that context. Um, so let me ask you this question. Like, what could we learn in palliative care by using a trauma-informed approach? So with trauma-informed approach, recognizing that history and that this person in front of me might be living with the generational trauma, mm -hmm. whether it was direct or not direct, and that using a trauma-informed approach is all about creating safety because mm -hmm. they haven't felt safe in many parts of their lives. Mm -hmm. And so what are the ways that we can create safety with them? And one of them is communication. One of them is about the space that we create for them. Um, whether it's sometimes, you know, it's having privacy. Uh, sometimes it's having recognizing that they're going to have somebody there that's supporting them and being inclusive of their support. Um, it's explaining every step that you are going to do with them, whether mm -hmm. it's explaining their illness or their care, or if you're going to have to do an exam, a physical exam, explain to them that this is what I need to do. And are you comfortable with that? Mm -hmm. And if not, what can we do to help you feel comfortable? Mm -hmm. So it's really about conversation. And I would have clinicians ask me, well, Joanna, how do we talk to Indigenous patients? What are the things we're supposed to say? Mm -hmm. And I just thought, well, I gave them a story that I had this one individual that I had supported. And what they said was after an appointment, we were walking down the hallway and they said, I really liked the way they spoke to me. I really liked the way they looked at me and they explained things to me, but also they listened to me mm -hmm. and they were satisfied with that appointment. However, this individual also said to me, they treat me different when you're with me. Mm -hmm. So lots of, I think, learning um, when it comes to creating safety. And so creating safety and how we communicate, but also creating safety and having Indigenous health professionals in the system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's, I often have learners with me um, when I'm out doing home visits, medical students or residents, 
nursing learner, uh, learners. And often the question comes up about, okay, where can I get information about caring for someone who is, um, you know, Islamic or Jewish or indigenous? Um, and I I'm just wondering with indigenous peoples, you know, there's um, so many different communities, right? You, you can't really say, I mean, there is this common thread of trauma-informed care and creating a safe environment, but are there other common threads that you can actually say Indigenous people um, um, require X, Y, and Z uh, to, to have care that matches their values and beliefs? Or do you, do you have to go um, community by community and really try to understand, is it, is it different across communities? And of course, each individual is different, but I guess what I'm saying is, I, I wonder if we paint a, a, the same brush over all Indigenous communities, um, and we shouldn't. Sammy, that's a, such an important question, um, because when we use the term Indigenous, it's a broad term. Mm -hmm. We're encompassing, um, you know, First Nations, Inuit, Métis, three different distinct groups um, with ties, connections as having, being their ancestors as the first peoples of this land. And so it's really important that people understand the three distinct groups of First Nations, Inuit, Métis, who they are, and then going deeper as in, you know, recognizing that in Ontario, um, there are many First Nation communities, if I'm correct, 135, I should really know this number, but 135 First Nation communities across Ontario. And that um, these nations are Cree, Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and a few more, and that they have different language um, lang they have their languages, um, but there's also different dialects from where I'm from as Anishinaabe on the North Shore in Ontario between Sudbury and Sault Ste. Marie. Um, but the dialect of Anishinaabe people on Manitoulin Island is different. And what I've heard from the language speakers, they'll know where you come from, depending on how you speak. So yeah, it's getting to know that individual deeper. And I, I think there's a question about Harvey. He says, what do I need to know about you to give that care to you? Um, but bringing in that cultural piece, but also what do I need to know? What do I need to know about you, your culture, you know, mm -hmm. to provide, to be able to try to provide culturally safer care? And so using the language of safer, mm -hmm. um, because um, I'm going to quote some of my colleagues, one Holly Prince, who had shared with me that Elder Albert uh, is his name. I can't remember his last name right now, but he said that this healthcare system wasn't designed for us. And so it could never be truly safe but we could only hope that it will be safer for mm. us. That's helpful. I think none of us can be experts on every single um, culture, uh, but I think when you know the questions to ask, 
that you can learn with the person that you're caring from. Um, that doesn't mean, you know, we don't do the work we need to do to educate ourselves, but um, I think you said a question there, something like, you know, can you help me understand the culture that you live in and how that might um, impact or be important at this stage of your life? Um, help me understand what you need uh, to feel safe in this chapter of your journey. Yeah. Safer, sorry, that, safer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, what are the cultural considerations that I need to be aware of? I like the uh, the FICA spiritual yeah. assessment yeah. tool. I would say that's appropriate mm-hmm. uh, to get to know someone's spirituality or culture and community. Yeah, I've heard of the FICA tool. I think it stands for faith, importance, community, and assessment. And it's one example of how we can customize care, right? And personalize care to a person. So that leads me to another question about resources for marginalized or vulnerable populations. Because health equity is so important to consider, and yet not all tools are automatically going to work for diverse populations. And so I'm curious, when you see different tools being created or work on projects that are designed for various communities, What are you looking for to know if that tool will be effective? I think that when we develop these tools and these keys, like the seven keys, I think about, are they relational? And how do these seven keys, you know, develop relationship, relationship that is reciprocal, um, that is shared, that we're creating a connection of, you know, respect, um, honesty. Um, one of, you know, you have the seven keys, but uh, Anishinaabe people have, you know, the seven sacred teachings or the seven sacred laws or grandfather teachings um, that you'll hear different names. I prefer to say seven sacred teachings to take the gender out. Um, but it's, you know, love, respect, humility, honesty, uh, courage or bravery, uh, wisdom, and love. And so, you know, do these seven keys create that relationship, you know, of these sacred values and principles that, you know, um, help people feel good, feel balanced, feel well, um, be in good relationship you know, with each other. So that's what I would say. Um, But also thinking about, you know, the work that we have done together, CN, um, with the capacity, you know, palliative care education program, right? Uh, There was an existing education program that um, was a value and that was enhancing people's, you know, practice in providing that palliative approach to care. And then, you know, what we did was, you know, collaborating with healthcare providers working in First Nations communities to say, take a look at this education program. Um, What do you think of it? Um, And pretty much, you know, they thought it was good. Um, But the other piece was, but there are a few key keys missing. And these, what should be in there? And, 
you know, these individuals had, you know, contributed to adding those keys, you know, to that content, uh, to enhance it, to make it relatable and relationable uh, to those healthcare providers uh, in First Nation communities that are going to benefit from this education. Again, thanks for bringing that up, Joanna. So if I can elaborate more for our listeners, Sammy and I, and with other co-investigators from across the country, developed a program called Capacity, which was an educational program to operationalize a palliative care approach for primary care teams. And so the results are very promising. And when we were approached by Indigenous Services Canada, we had to think of how to adapt this for First Nations communities in Ontario. And so we took a co-design approach where a small group of Indigenous providers from 13 different communities took our program and helped to design a new version with more culturally relevant content. So for example, together we changed the name to Supporting the Journey Home, Growing Your Community Bundle to Care for Those with Serious Illness. So my question to you, Joanna, is what is your sense of how the reaction has been uh, by First Nations participants to the adapted program supporting the journey home? Yeah, you know, when I think about, you know, the work that I have, I have done over the years, this is probably going to be top 10. I don't know what the other ones are, but I would say this would probably be top 10 where I felt that we did things in a good way. <clears throat> and we often use that saying, you know, let's do things in a good way. And, you know, for our team, we can say, yeah, we think we're doing this right, you know, and, and good, but really it was those 12 individuals who participated in that co-design process um, that had told us how they felt in this experience in collaborating with each other. And so when they say and give that feedback that for example, there was one individual where they said, I felt safe to say anything that I wanted to say. And that I knew that if I was going to give some feedback that might be difficult to say, that I know that people are going to listen to me and that they're not going to treat me differently because I'm going to say something that might be difficult and hard to hear for others to hear. And so when someone can say that, that I feel safe with all of you to say the hard things and the difficult things and hurtful things, um, then I think we did a good job. So yeah, it's that, I think with that collaboration piece that we did, um, I think we, we created a space um, where people felt that I can say anything that I need to say here and what I really appreciated about this process and with, you know, the McMaster team, you know, we have such a diverse team of people from what we would say from the four directions, recognizing that there are colors and nations from the four directions and that we are, you know, in the circle together, working together, bringing our knowledge and gifts together. And what I would say with our team is that there was no question or doubt that if one of the co-designers said, okay, this is what you got to do, we just did it. Um, and so I think that was really important too, was recognizing, you know, 
that knowledge that was coming from the First Nation communities and not questioning it or doubting it. That if they're saying that this is what needs to be in here, then we're going to put it in this education. You know, one of the things that I wanted to um, hear more about was you talked about the sort of the intergenerational trauma that occurred because of colonization, but there's also trauma specific to the healthcare system, particularly people who are sick. And so what does that look like um, from an indigenous lens? Yeah, so thinking about, you know, First Nation communities in Ontario, and I've also seen this with Inuit as well. Oh, I had to take a breath there because it's really hard for people, as we know, to leave your family, regardless of age, regardless of reason. When you have to leave your family and your home community, your homeland, that's a piece of you that, um, you know, that you feel disconnected from. And so having to go into a space that looks so much different from what you know. Um, my grandfather, you know, for example, he came to Toronto only once. Um, where I live, it's a five-hour drive now from Toronto. Back then, it was probably twice as long. Um, but, you know, he didn't like coming to Toronto. And so he stayed in his home community. And you can always see him walking in the community. So for people to leave is really hard. And then sometimes people are leaving by themselves where they don't have um, that support beside them to navigate these scary places because there's many stories. The stories of once they go, they're never going to come back or they're going to die there or stories of I was mistreated there. And I think of this woman that I had supported. Uh, she spoke English and Cree. Cree was her first language. She also read in her language uh, syllabics. And I remember one day she had said to me, I feel like people don't understand me. And, you know, this is a woman who um, had her language and her culture and her teachings and what we also discovered, what I had discovered later on, that here's this woman that is receiving care at this place for a significant period of time. And I think in a second round that nobody knew she couldn't read English. And I discovered that because she trusted me to tell me, I can't read that. And I was like, oh, okay. So here was this woman, is she going into the cancer center and doing her ESAS, Edmonton Symptom Assessment? And so I think uh, that screening tool, and so I had explained to her, well, this is, you know, when they ask you to go to that computer and fill, you know, answer those questions, you know, this is what they want to know about you. And it's going to help them understand what you're going through. And so after I explained that to her, the next time I saw her and I walk in the clinic and she looks at me and she goes, I did that today. And she was so proud. So you have people coming into a system that they don't really know and people that 
don't have the time or maybe are not making the time to sit with people and welcome them and tell them about when you come here, these are some of the things uh, we want to do with you here. So there's lots of, I think, considerations we need to think about when they're coming into um, you know, these mainstream spaces because uh, in the education that we do, Cian, and um, the education that I do with um, Lakehead University with the frontline palliative care training for frontline workers in indigenous communities, um, I always encourage those uh, frontline workers to have conversations with their community members about palliative care because educate them about their illness, about the different types of care, because it's better that they're going to hear it from you, someone they know, than going to maybe hospital, going to emerge, and then someone explaining to them, you've got a really serious illness. Do you understand that? Um, you should be offered palliative care right now. Do you know what that is? Right? So, um, I think education really needs to start in our home communities so that when they have a little bit of knowledge and tools, when they go into those mainstream settings where often they're gonna be on their own. So that's just one of the things, you know, we would yeah. have to consider when people are leaving their home communities. Yeah. Do you have any advice for healthcare workers from, you know, traditional Western institutions of how they could, things they could do to make the experience or the physical um, space culturally safer for Indigenous people who come through? Well, I would just say it's, you know, feeling welcome. Um, Elder, Jane, Elder Jim Dumont uh, from Shawanaga First Nation, um, he was involved in the um, Indigenous Wellness Framework. And he said, emotional wellness on that framework of that Indigenous Wellness model, it says emotional well-being is created by belonging. Um, and it's the belonging of family and community. So thinking about these healthcare spaces as a community, how can we create belonging for any individual and their family coming in for care? I believe it starts right at the time they meet the clerks to sign in. And that can really set the tone and the space of how welcome do I feel here mm -hmm. when that person welcomes you. Um, and then, you know, I think about the volunteers that I have seen in these, you know, settings, and they are so welcoming. Um, so I think we can learn a lot from the volunteers. Um, as well as, you know, having Indigenous, you know, patient navigators, or there's the Indigenous transition facilitators. I would also have to say that I've saw some clinicians that 
had these relational approaches where, you know, the laptop wasn't open or, you know, the chart wasn't in their hands. It was them developing that relationship and that safety and then being able to sit next to them, you know, on, you know, that clinical bed and having a conversation with them and comforting them. So I know it takes a lot to get to that place where you can sit next to them and comfort them and maybe, you know, put a hand on their shoulder, um, but developing, you know, trust and how can I develop trust and safety with this individual? Knowing that maybe this, I have a First Nations or Inuit or Métis person in front of me that has, you know, deep connections to their culture, maybe or maybe not, knowing, you know, the impacts of residential school. Um, maybe this person has deep connections or maybe they're reconnecting or maybe they're just thinking about reconnecting to their culture and community. So, um, but recognizing that, you know, they might have journeyed in this world in been in many spaces where they didn't feel safe and like that one said I like the way they looked at me they spoke to me and they listened to me when you listen to Joanna what is um, suggested and needed and required it, it just sounds so like treating someone like a human um, instead of an object um, like a truly um, showing up and making them feel like a person um, is really, that's what I'm reminded of when you're, when I listen to you speak, um, how important that is not to be objectified, not to be reduced to, you know, a person with cancer or an organ or a room number or a bed number, <laughs> that they, they need to be feel as if the person is seeing them as a human. Mm -hmm. You know, I think about um, the rushing as well and being rushed and how, you know, I think about my experience in the hospitals and the transitions that they go through to you check in with the clerk, you know, you go do your ESAS, um, you go sit in the waiting room. Okay, wait, now you got to go do blood work and come back to the room. Okay, you're going to go do a CT scan and then come back and then you're going to see your doctor and that's a full day. And, you know, I think about, oh, you got to go here now. But I think in the way we approach people and say, you know, hi, I'm Joanna and you know, I'm a nurse here and um, I'm going to do your blood work today. You know, can you come with me? And just saying, you know, taking time to just say a little bit more about mm -hmm. what's happening. But, and I think if we can shift the way we move in those spaces, because I know a lot of times we can feel rushed. And then all we're doing is rushing all day. And I've seen that. And we know that feeling that happens inside of our bodies. It doesn't mm -hmm. feel good. And I really believe in, you know, energy and that we feel other people's energy mm -hmm. um, and how we can really shift that, you know, on how we approach someone. Mm -hmm. Slow down um, and uh, be present because when we rush around, 
and everything is so busy, that's when you feel a, a, a person can feel like they're disconnected. They're having an out of body experience uh, because mm -hmm. it's like robotic and people don't want to be treated like a robot. And the more we rush around, I guess the more we, we cut corners on the human touches that we have or the touch points with the person. And so when you say like out of body experience and when we disconnect from our bodies, we're feeling unsafe. Yeah. And so it's about creating space so that I can remain connected to my body mm -hmm. and, you know, feel safe. Mm -hmm. I hope you don't mind me asking, um, Joanna. So I'm thinking of one patient that I have and, uh, she is Indigenous. I do not know um, what exact community, but she does live here in Hamilton and she lives in an apartment with her son and she must be about, she must be in her sixties, I would say. Um, but anyway, um, there's lots of Indigenous art in her apartment. Um, so clearly it, it, it's, it's important to her. Okay, so she has, um, it was lung cancer. Okay. And so she has pain, you know, on her side of her, um, her um, mediastinum. So like over here, we have tried everything to try to understand her pain and to try different medications, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, we have talked about when we like the nurse that I'm with, when we leave the home or sometimes before we go into the home, like, are there things we're not tapping into? So what, what's it like for someone who's not Indigenous to, to be inquiring to someone who's Indigenous, who's having suffering, and they're, they're talking about it as pain, physical pain. Um, mm -hmm. and, I, and I have the sense that there's something else there. Yeah. You know, one thing I'm thinking is I should get our local Indigenous navigator involved for sure. Um, mm -hmm. But like, are there things that you can suggest that I might get under yeah. some of that? Well, you know, we often, when we think about pain, we think of the physical pain, but, you know, I find in palliative care, mm -hmm. we have a bigger lens of the emotional pain, which I, I think mm -hmm. you're thinking about mm -hmm. mental pain or spiritual pain. And you know, I think in getting to know this woman and you recognizing, you know, the art that she has in her home, sacred items that she has in her home and getting to know her, I would probably ask her about, you know, I've noticed you've got a lot of art in here and can you tell me about it? And, mm -hmm. you know, where did it come from? You know, what does it mean to you? Mm -hmm. um, because I think one of the things we talk about is like legacy work, right? Mm -hmm. When we have these Indigenous um, sacred items in our home, you know, these are legacies of our ancestors and that it'll be a part of our legacy too, that we cared for these sacred items in our home. Um, I think that could be a way of starting the conversation. You know, some of these individuals, like you said, I wonder if this person is a residential school survivor, we could say is a survivor, um, or maybe they went to day school. 
Um, and so that's another experience. So my mom went to day school, my grandmother went to residential school. So um, just, I think getting to know her. And so if she, if this individual shares about, you know, and identifies with a community, like you said, I don't know what community she's from, then, um, you know, get to know, like, so, you know, which community are you from? And beginning there, tell me about the language. Tell me about the the traditions, uh, the things that people did in the community. I love hearing my mom tell the stories about what, you know, life was like for her living in our community, you know, as well. So, yeah, I think it's an mm -hmm. opportunity for you, Sammy, to uh, get to know um, her identity and mm -hmm. who she really is. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, you know what, honestly, that is so wonderful, because I feel like I've done everything but that. And I feel, you know, that that's a shortcoming on, you know, my end. When um, I visited her once, and I, she allowed me to examine her, and I touched the area so gently, the next time I went, which was weeks later, she shared with me that um, it caused her to have a pain crisis. And it lasted forever, she said, and it just went away by the time I got there on my second visit, which was weeks apart. But when I say that I examined her and touched that area, it was feather touch. And so again, there was something that made like it was a just a red flag and intuition that there is something about being touched that for her is um, just is triggering. You know, one of the questions that you could ask too is, you know, I'm thinking about that time when I had examined you and I barely touched you, but you felt a lot of pain. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering you know, that pain that you're experiencing there, does it remind you of something of another experience that you had in the past? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then maybe that could open a doorway to getting to know a little bit more mm -hmm. about how she has experienced pain. Mm -hmm. Because I think about um, the integration of our memories. And you know, uh, in my trauma work, we talk about memories from um, implicit to explicit. And that, you know, we store these memories in our body. Mm -hmm. And there's the book called The Body Keeps the Score. Um, and that when we don't get to tell the story of that memory, um, we don't integrate the healing. Um, and so the integration to explicit of that memory is that it's not about having to say what happened, but it's more about how did it make you feel? And then it's always going into a place of validation um, and then letting them know that, well, I'm here to care for you. 
And so I want to know everything that it, I need to know to give you the best possible care. So interesting because I'm wondering why, because I do that with most of my patients. I mean, it, it is everyday clinical work for palliative care clinician to be um, helping people to see the different domains of pain, right? And suffering, um, spiritual, religious, uh, financial, psychosocial, emotional, you know, all the different layers. I think it's starting off with that and learning mm -hmm. about her um, cultural identity and let her tell you her story. You won't have to ask questions. All you have to mm -hmm. do is just ask, I notice you have these sacred items mm -hmm. in your home. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about them? Yeah. I don't know anything about them, but I, I recognize that they are indigenous mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. then just start it from there. That's what I'm going to do. And what do they, yeah. And what do they mean to you? You know, somebody might say, you know, it means so much because there was a time that we couldn't have these in our possession, mm -hmm. right? You never know where the conversation will take you. Mm -hmm. Or they might say, oh, this was gifted to me by this person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, stay tuned. I will, I will keep you updated how I do. Yes. Yeah, please do. For sure. Thank you for that. Joanna, what an honor to chat with you and learn from you. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Well, you know, Cian, you talked about the opening, right? And I had opened it with my, um, you know, traditional name, my clan and my community and how you know it it's like it sends a call out to the ancestors it's like standing cedar is speaking and she could you probably use our support to bring in these good messages that others are going to hear um and so it's important that we do a closing mm -hmm. and so i want to thank you both cn and sammy and the waiting revolution room team uh, for inviting me, you know, to come and share the little bit that I know is what we say. We never know a lot. We know a little, um, but we always gain a lot, you know, from the time that we share with each other. And that I just want to, you know, acknowledge, you know, those elders and teachers and those individuals and families that have taught me, you know, to be able to uh, talk about, you know, this sacred time in people's lives and this sacred life event, you know, of end of life. And I just want to say Chimi Gwich is thank you in my language. And we also say Bamapin Minwakuabman, which means see you later, um, because we don't have the word goodbye. We'll always mm. see each other again, whether it's in this physical world or whether it's in the spiritual world. Hmm. Joanna, Jimmy Quitch. Mm -hmm. Yes. Thank you, Joanna. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. You can visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com, to learn more about our movement and how you can join it. The podcast is produced by myself, Kayla McMillan, Valerie Bishop, Shilpa Jyothi Kumar, and Maggie Sivak. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketsap.